This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. I want to remind you that you can now support the podcast with a YouTube membership. Just click on the Join button there on the YouTube channel, or you can find links to it in the podcast show notes. This week's episode is episode 287, entitled Exploring the Triad in Jude, chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. Yes, we're continuing to go through all of the triadic passages in the New Testament. We're looking for evidence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being defined as three distinct persons in the one God. And we've looked through the triadic passages in Matthew. We've looked in Romans. We've looked in 1 Corinthians. We've looked in 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Hebrews. And last week we looked at 1 Peter. And we have yet to find the statement indicating that there is one God that consists of three distinct persons, namely the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have not found that passage, but we're going to look today and hopefully we'll find it here in Jude because there's another passage in Jude, the first chapter, verses 20 through 21, in which God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit again appear. Maybe we'll find evidence of the doctrine of the Trinity, but probably we won't. So what can we expect to find in this particular passage, which claims to be written by Jesus' own brother, Jude? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first one today is looking at the triadic statement in the epistle of Jude. So starting in chapter 1, verse 20, our passage reads, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. That's Jude 1, verses 20 through 21. There you have it. We've got God, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit all together. But I again have to politely point out that this is not the definition of of the doctrine of the Trinity, even by the Trinitarian's own standard of definition. The Trinity, as you will recall, is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that together make up, as three distinct persons, one true God. But our passage talks about God, Jesus, and the Spirit. So when it talks about God, it indicates that God is the one who loves the readers, they're to keep themselves in the love of God. That is the responsibility of Jude's recipients. They have to keep themselves in the sphere of God's own love. But the title God only appears here. It's not used to describe the Holy Spirit, and it's certainly not used to describe Jesus. What does our passage say about Jesus? Well, the Son in this passage, is described as our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the person who will offer mercy in the future to the ideal readers. 
we can see that the given human name Jesus is paired with the title for the Messianic King, that is Christ. Christ, of course, is the one who is anointed by God, so we're not surprised that Christ is distinguished from God. And the phrase, Jesus Christ, together, those two nouns, is the designation that's used to illustrate the Son in every single instance where he appears in the letter to Jude. And this is going to be very important when we look at the evidence of a particular textual corruption in verse 5. More importantly, Jesus is described as our Lord. And the stress on Jesus being our Lord emphasizes that it is Jesus and not Caesar as Lord who is to be the Lord of the believers. Here Jesus is functioning as a master of sorts of the believers. They are to obey him as Lord and as master. Jesus is our Lord. Now the Spirit is described as the sphere within believers are to be praying. They are to pray in the Holy Spirit. They're not to pray to the Holy Spirit as if the Spirit is the object of prayer. No, not in this passage and not anywhere within the Old Testament nor in the New Testament is the Spirit functioning as the object of prayer language or acts of prayer. There's no indication in our passage that the Spirit, which usually in the Bible is the extended presence and power of the true God, there's no indication here that this Spirit has evolved into being a distinct and conscious person alongside the Father. It's just the extended presence of God in which the believers are to pray. So we don't have any indication here of the three members of the supposed triune God. But how might we be able to understand our passage if we place it in the context of Jude as a whole? What does Jude have to say about God, about Jesus, and about the Spirit in the rest of the epistle? This will move us to our second point. Point number two, what Jude teaches about God. Now, Jude is a fairly short letter, so we're not going to have a lot of evidence, but we'll be able to look at every single passage that talks about God, every passage that talks about the Son, and every passage that talks about the Spirit. But as you're going to see, there's not really a lot to go on. So, in typical epistolary fashion, Jude begins in the first verse by acknowledging the senders of the letter. So, it says in Jude 1.1, it says the letter is to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So what does Jude teach us about God? Well, God is described as the Father, never as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God here is distinguished from Jesus Christ. They are distinct. It is as if there is God and there's Jesus. It is the Father, and there's also the Son. But God just is the Father, and Jesus Christ is someone other than God. That much seems quite clear, and children can understand that basic distinction. Towards the end of Jude, we see the conclusion, we see the benediction, 
And you have to read verses 24 and 25 together because they're all one sentence in Greek, even though they're divided up into two verses in English. So in verse 24, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. That's Jude 1, verses 24 through 25. So this person is described in verse 25 as our only God and Savior. This person is also distinguished from Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus Christ our Lord is not the only God our Savior. In fact, Jesus is distinct from our only God and Savior. The passage begins by indicating that it is to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Well, who is this him being described? Well, that him is further elaborated in verse 25. The him is the only God, our Savior. And it says in verse 24 that he is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory. So the only God, our Savior, is one person. He is a him. He has his own glory. And he is distinct from Jesus Christ, our Lord. This God here, of course, still is a Unitarian God who is a single person described in the first verse as the Father, and obviously the only God is someone distinct from Jesus. And that is why glory, majesty, dominion, and authority should be given to him before all time and now and forevermore. That makes sense with the Father. It doesn't make sense with Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's what we have in regard to the clear evidence. What about the unclear evidence? Well, in verse 5, we have a textual variant that brings into question who it is that brought the people out of the land of Egypt. So in chapter 1, verse 5, in the New American Standard Version, it says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord... Keep in mind that subject, the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, he subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now, there are several Greek manuscripts that will have different words here describing who it actually was that saved the people out of the land of Egypt and subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And actually, if you keep reading in verse 6, we learn a little bit more about this particular person. It says in verse 6 that angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So there's one person who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, who also destroyed those who were unfaithful, and who has the power and authority to keep angels who abandoned their proper abode, and he now keeps them in eternal bonds until the day of judgment. This is one person. This is not three persons. This is one person. And the manuscript differences here suggests that it could be 
the Lord. It could be Jesus, or it could be some other sort of reference in regard to God that is unlikely to be original. Now, I actually think that the evidence points to the phrase, the Lord, being the original reading of Jude 1 verse 5. And I think that that reference to the Lord actually is the Lord God, clearly. Now, you might say Jesus has been called the Lord in Jude, and that is true. But Jesus has been called our Lord, using a title to refer to Jesus as our master, as our superior. It's not the Lord as kind of a designation that is a substitute for the name of God, like Yahweh. It seems here that that is just kind of a way of describing the personal name of God that was already there in the Exodus narrative. And remember, every single time that Jesus appears in Jude, it is always Jesus Christ. And one of the popular variants that often gets put forth as potentially being the original reading of Jude just says Jesus. It would say Jesus by itself, not Jesus Christ. And that, I think, makes that particular reading very suspicious. Why would, in every single other occurrence, Jesus be described as Jesus Christ, but in this one particular place that is awfully questionable, it's not Jesus Christ, it's simply Jesus. That actually makes it look very suspicious. Problem is that our earliest surviving manuscript of Jude, which if I'm not mistaken, actually comes from the third century, so it's already pretty late from the time that Jude was actually written. It actually says a particular reading that is not suggested by modern Bible translations. They actually regard the earliest reading as corrupt. And so I think that the reference can't be Jesus. I think it's much more likely to be the Lord and that the Lord is in reference to God. But I know that's debated, but I wanted to make sure that we covered the passage in order to at least be thorough with all of the places in which God clearly and arguably is described within the letter of Jude. That's all that it says about God. What does it say about Jesus the Son? This will move us to our third point. Point number three, what Jude teaches about the Son. We already noticed that Jesus introduced in chapter 1, verse 1, but he is introduced in a way that associates him with the author. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And we know from the gospel traditions that Jesus had brothers. He had younger brothers, and Jude and James were two of these brothers. And Jude indicates that he is a brother of James. Now, he doesn't say he's a brother of Jesus, because that would almost be too presumptuous. Although it'd be saying something that's certainly true, it would be said in a way that might lend credence to some sort of prideful admission. Instead of saying, I'm Jesus' brother, Jude says that he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He sees himself as a servant of Jesus, meaning Jesus is his master. Jesus is his Lord. 
that's going to be very important as we continue to read on. We can also see in verse 4 this warning that certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness and they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus here, I think, the Greek indicates, is described as our only Master and Lord. I think Master and Lord here are functioning as just two different ways of describing the same thing, as if the word and really should be understood as even, our only Master, even Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think this is our only Master, namely God, and someone else, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's all in reference to a single person. I think that's the most natural way that you would read the Greek text. And it's clear, Jude is the servant of Jesus. So Jesus is the master and Lord. The word for master is the Greek noun despot, indicating someone who actually has servants and slaves working under him. And Jude is indicating that Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our master meaning that the readers should not regard anyone else as their master and their Lord, namely Caesar. In verse 17, we see a little bit more about Jesus. It says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that Jesus has apostles. Jesus has these delegated agents that are sent out that speak words that are authoritative for the church. And then we saw in the very last verse that Jesus Christ our Lord is the person through whom the only God our Savior is to receive dominion, authority, and all these other great accolades. But in doing so, Jesus Christ our Lord is distinguished from the only God. Jesus is not the only God. He is distinguished and distinct from the only God. God, of course, is described as the Father alone in Jude. And that's all that it says about Jesus. What about the Holy Spirit? This moves us to our fourth point. What Jude teaches about the Spirit. Now, other than our target passage that says that believers should be praying in the sphere of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit only appears one other time. And this is in verses 17 through 19, which say, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. That's Jude 1, verses 17 through 19. So we have these mockers who follow after their own lust. They are ungodly. They cause strife and divisions. They are interested in worldly things. And they do not possess the Spirit. That is a more accurate translation. The NASB says devoid of the Spirit, which is fine. But we have these people that the apostles of Jesus warned us about that they are not going to possess the Spirit. So what can we learn about the Spirit? 
from this passage? Well, we can see that the Spirit is something that God gives to His true people. It's an extension of God's self. But the mockers who are ungodly, who are worldly-minded, do not possess the Spirit. And so, if you do possess the Spirit, that is the thing in which you are to pray. And that's all that Jude has to say about the Spirit. But we don't get any indication here that the Spirit is talking as a separate person or as a conscious person or described as the third person alongside God and Jesus. Now the Spirit is just the extended presence of God in which believers are supposed to be praying. So in conclusion, what have we learned about God, Jesus, and the Spirit in the epistle of Jude? Well, we've seen that God is the Father, and he's described as the only God. God is distinct from Jesus on every clear instance within the letter of Jude, including, arguably, Jude 1.5. God is described as the Father, never as the Son or the Spirit, and certainly God is never described as more than one person. In fact, on many occasions, God is described with singular pronouns and singular verbs. What about Jesus? Well, Jesus in Jude is the Christ. He is the anointed king of the kingdom. He is the brother of Jude and James. And this, of course, would make him a human being, just like Jude and James are human beings. It is Jesus and not Caesar who is our Lord. And readers are encouraged to treat Jesus as their only Lord and Master, meaning that not only Jude, but also the readers are to function as bondservants of Jesus, their master. And the Spirit is the possession of believers. Those believers actually possess, they have the Spirit. The people of God have been given the Holy Spirit. They are also to pray in the Spirit, but the Spirit shows no signs at all that it is anything more than simply God's power and extended presence. The Spirit is not a separate person, and it is certainly not the object of prayer language. So in sum, Jude chapter 1, verses 20-21 is not, on close inspection, a reference to the triune God, neither explicitly nor implicitly. It is completely incompatible with the doctrine of the Trinity. On the contrary, our target passage actually distinguishes the only true God from Jesus thereby making it a biblical Unitarian text. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we explore our final triadic statement in the New Testament. We're going to look at the last one, and it's in the book of Revelation, chapter 1. In that passage, we have God, Jesus, and the Spirit again mentioned together, or at least that's what some interpreters think is what's taking place in Revelation, chapter 1. There's a little intrigue in regard to this passage. So please look forward to our next episode if you want all the details. Now, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support us absolutely for free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review online, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, you can check out the episode's description for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. 
I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.